In this first presentation, I want to explore the origins of the catechumenate, which emerged sometime in the second century. This will lay the foundations for the three presentations that we have following. Consider this curious turn of events. In his account of the early expansion of Christianity, Luke, the author of the gospel, tells the story of several conversions. Among them, the Ethiopian eunuch, the Pharisee Saul, later known as Paul, Cornelius the centurion, the Philippian jailer. And in each of these, Luke relates how these conversions occurred and what followed in their wake. In each case, conversion resulted in immediate baptism. Fast forward to the middle of the second century. It's clear that conversion no longer leads to immediate baptism. There's a delay between an initial interest in or conversion to Christianity and the administration of baptism. A long display, too, sometimes up to three years. It's a puzzle. Why the change? This might seem like an obscure question, but it is actually far from irrelevant, for it introduces us to one of the central practices of the early Christian period that not only allowed for the survival of the Christian movement, but also contributed to its growth under very difficult circumstances. This central practice was embodied in the structure of the early Christian catechumenate. There was good reason for its development in the early Christian period. The Christian movement began as a small sect within Judaism and spread quite rapidly and steadily, though unevenly, throughout the Roman world eventually becoming a formidable rival to other ancient religions long before Constantine came to power in the early 4th century. The church demonstrated an unusual capacity to establish meaningful contact with unbelievers and yet maintain high standards of membership to welcome outsiders into the church and to turn them into committed disciples. Over time, the Christian movement began to reach a growing number of Gentiles who knew little or nothing about Christianity. The difference between Greco-Roman religion and Christianity was great enough to require the church to create some kind of bridge between the two. Engineers build bridges, of course, to span a physical barrier, a river or a canyon, say, that prohibits convenient and easy crossing. The barrier in this case was the chasm between the old world of traditional Roman religion and the new world of Christianity. The church had to build some kind of bridge that would allow Gentiles to transition from one world to another and thus become established believers. The basic contours of the early Christian catechumenate appear in rough outline in the Didache and in Justin's first apology. Tertullian, Clement, and Origen in the second and third century all assumed its existence, and Hippolytus outlined its basic structure. And we'll return to Hippolytus uh, at the end. It's clear from these and other sources that the church, facing problems and challenges as it spread and grew, developed a rigorous training program to form people in the faith, to prepare them for church membership, and to equip them to be effective witnesses in the empire. 
This training program communicated very clearly that discipleship is not for a few special Christians, but for all Christians. Not an option, but an expectation. Not an addition to conversion, but an essential feature of conversion. So, how did it work? Ordinary church members established the first point of contact with unbelievers, reaching out to their friends and neighbors in the name of Christ. They lived in the same world. They spoke the same language, lived in the same apartment buildings, shopped in the same markets, and worked in many of the same jobs and trades. They witnessed to their faith and drew friends and neighbors into the church. The church, in turn, created the catechumenate as an institutional bridge to help outsiders move from traditional religion to Christian faith. The church thus erected and maintained what sociologists call permeable boundaries. It kept distance from and yet engaged the Roman world, neither accommodating to it nor isolating from it, but instead immersing itself in the culture until over a long period it began to reach and win it. The catechumenate enabled converts to become functional disciples and thus helped to form a community of Christians whose example of faith and obedience provided a clear and winsome alternative to Christianity's major competitors, traditional religion, the mystery religions, other philosophical schools, and Judaism. Steady growth made this young movement increasingly visible which perpetuated the cycle of success. The relatively high level of commitment among its members, which the catechumenate itself helped to solidify, only strengthened momentum, as if it were a successful farm system feeding a major league club with a steady stream of great players. Considering the cultural climate, nothing short of a rigorous training program would have sufficed The catechumenate functioned much like a total immersion program in language study. Such a program becomes almost necessary with languages that are farthest removed from one's native language. It's one thing to learn a familiar dialect, which requires little more than casual exposure and practice because the difference is too slight to require much more. It's another thing to learn an alien language. A student must cross the bridge, leaving behind one linguistic world to enter another and alien one. The difference between the two is so great that nothing short of complete immersion will do. And I'd love to come back at some point over the weekend to these two metaphors, the bridge and this language immersion study. I think there's a lot in these metaphors that that we could tease out together. It's hard for us to imagine today what it would have been like to face day after day the difficulty of reaching and winning converts in the ancient world. Although I imagine, for you that live in San Francisco, it might be quite easy to imagine what this world would be like. Paul usually launched his evangelistic enterprise in synagogues, which afforded him the luxury of assuming his audience had or at least had some level of knowledge with basic salvation history. The history of Israel itself served as the matrix for introducing the good news about Jesus Christ, who, according to Christian proclamation, fulfilled it. 
But Paul faced a different kind of challenge when speaking to a Greco-Roman audience, and we see this in Acts 17. They had no idea about the story, and in fact, they lacked the basic categories, the grammar, if you will, that would make sense of the story. They did not think in terms of creation, fall, and redemption, of the death and resurrection of Jesus and his atoning sacrifice, of faith and obedience, of Christ's kingdom rule. Once Paul moved beyond this Jewish milieu, the early Christians had to start from scratch. These circumstances forced church leaders to consider carefully and to plan strategically how to move converts into the fold of Christianity. A simple conversion, as we see in in most of the conversion stories of Acts, was not enough. For Romans had to be converted to an entirely different belief system and the way of life that was as alien to them as a language like Chinese is to English speakers. This huge gap required time, patience, and purposefulness. Anything short of that would have undermined the very faith that Christian leaders proclaimed, which Roman critics opposed the martyrs died for, a faith rooted in the incarnation, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. To add Jesus to the pantheon of Roman gods and goddesses as Porphyry, one of the early critics of Christianity, advocated, and to present Christianity as just another option in the already crowded field of religion. That was one thing. The Christians could have done that. A conversion to that kind of religion would have happened quite quickly and easily. But conversion to apostolic Christianity was another thing altogether. The word catechumenate is derived from the Greek term katecheo. The word surfaces rather late in secular Greek, and it's not found in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. Its basic meaning was to share an oral communication to an audience, to report and inform and also to sound from above as poets and orators did in the ancient world when addressing an audience from a stage. In this sense, it referred to a kind of public performance, a sounding downward of important ideas. Over time, it was used in two ways. First, to recount something important, and second, to instruct someone, especially in the rudiments of a subject or a skill. The word katecheo has got etymological roots to our words for acoustic and echo, or um, yeah, these sort of auditory words that we think of. So kata echo, meaning to echo from above. This, this sort of idea is where the, where the word comes from. It appears only a handful of times in the New Testament. The authors adopted and adapted a rare Greek word to convey something that no other word would do. They adopt this Unusual word. It can have just a basic meaning of teaching, but they adopt it in a pretty specific sense. So Paul used used it to refer to Jewish instruction in the law at Romans 2.18 and to his commitment to speak five intelligible words in a known language rather than 10,000 words in an unknown language. That passage from 1 Corinthians 14, which implies that these five words were especially fundamental and important. He contrasted the person who taught, again in what appears to be a formal sense, 
with those who are being taught, which hints at some kind of formal teaching ministry. The Galatians 6.6 6 passage mentions a catechist and a catechumen, one teaching and one being taught. Something about this relationship seems to be important to this word. Early Christian leaders also borrowed and adapted the language of Roman athletic competition to reinforce the importance of readiness, training, and rigor. They had a clear purpose in mind, preparation for actual competition, which in their case meant witness to the Roman Empire. A sense of urgency and seriousness prevailed. Practice would be put to the test in real life. Discipline would be put on the line. There could be no spectators in the church, only athletes. For spectators were sure to fail and fold under the pressure of living in a cultural setting in which suspicion was normal and possible. Paul implied as much when he exhorted Timothy, Train yourself in godliness, for while physical training is of some value, godliness is valuable in every way, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. Paul had endurance in mind, especially because Timothy, most Christians, in fact, faced opposition. The use of athletic metaphors underscored a view of discipleship that dominated the period. Commitment to genuine faith in Christ, discipline of the appetites, cultivation of virtue, love for others, service to the needy, and faithfulness and persecution. Unlike athletic competition in the Greco-Roman world, however, spiritual training in the church was intended to include everyone. Not simply men, but also women. Not simply the young, but also the old and infirmed. Not simply the elites, but also ordinary people. The only qualification was a willingness to follow Jesus as Lord. Discipleship was not for the faint of heart, but for those who were ready to be trained in the faith as an athlete is trained in a sport. Age, gender, physique, background, and social status were superseded by commitment to Christ and a perseverance in the faith. So some early glimpses of what the catechumenate looked like. Early Christian documents offer glimpses of the catechumenate, though an outline of the actual structure doesn't appear until around the year 200. For example, the Didache, an early 2nd century text, which functioned as a training manual for the church, begins with a description of the two ways, the one referring to the Christian way of life, the other referring to the pagan way of death. After outlining the two ways, the manual details several liturgical practices, including how the church should baptize new believers. The manual assumes candidates had already been instructed in the two ways before baptism, implying that baptism followed rather than preceded spiritual training. In the first apology uh, of the writing by Justin Martyr, it's probably in the 160s or so, In this text, it explains how the church in the middle of the second century baptized new believers. It's clear that baptism required more than belief. It also demanded a change of behavior. Once again, demonstrating that belief and behavior were seamlessly woven together. Quote, 
As many are persuaded and believe that what we teach and say is true and undertake to be able to live accordingly are instructed to pray and to entreat God with fasting for the remission of their sins that are past, we praying and fasting with them. Then they are brought by us where there is water and are regenerated in the same manner in which we ourselves were regenerated. For in the name of God, the Father and Lord of the universe and of our Savior Jesus Christ and of the Holy Spirit, then they then receive the washing with water. Origen, the most learned and prolific Christian writer of the third century, used Israel's journey from Egypt to the promised land as a metaphor for the catechetical process. Interestingly, he doesn't equate baptism with the crossing of the Red Sea, as as we might expect, which happens early in the story, but instead with the crossing of the Jordan River, which means that the crossing of the Red Sea is the entrance into the catechumenate. And the 40 years in the desert is that is his metaphor for the catechumenate. Once again, Origen underscored the importance of training. When you abandon the darkness of idolatry and when you desire to arrive in the knowledge of the divine law, then begin your departure from Egypt. When you have been accepted into the crowd of the catechumens and when you have begun to obey the commandments of the church, you have crossed the Red Sea. In the halts of the desert each day, you apply yourself to listening to the law of God and to contemplate the visage of Moses, which discloses the glory of the Lord. I just, I just love origin, by the way. That's just a little, little taste of the, the glory of origin. Catechumens would finally arrive at the shores of the Jordan River. Crossing that river was equated to the sacrament of baptism, which occurred at the end of the catechetical process. Again, when we're thinking about metaphors for catechesis, that's another crucial one, I think, that the, the language of the desert, the crossing of, of the Jordan, and what's on the other side of the Jordan? Promised land. That's what baptism brings one into. So, turning to the, the apostolic tradition. By the early 3rd century, some kind of formal training process was in place. The most comprehensive description we have comes from the apostolic tradition. It's written as a church manual in the early 3rd century and reaches its final form, what we have today, in around the 4th century. The apostolic tradition outlined the basic structure of the ancient catechumenate, highlighting three features in particular, enrollment, instruction, and rites of initiation. What is immediately obvious upon reading it is the importance of relationships and rigorous training, which culminated in a final induction ceremony that had a pageantry similar to a West Point graduation. So first, the document explained the process of enrollment. The Christian movement grew at the grassroots level, at least in the 2nd and 3rd centuries. Christians reaching their relatives, friends, and neighbors through daily interaction in public places. Such a web of relationships modeled Christian community to outsiders, which meant that the church itself 
became a primary means of evangelization, a relational womb of rebirth. Evangelism occurred in the setting of natural social relationships. Ordinary Christians took the lead. Once contact was made and interest awakened, believers invited their friends to meet with a church leader who would examine them to see if they were ready to be enrolled in the catechumenate and thus become catechumens. In most cases, the believers who brought their friends served as the sponsor, also known as the godparent, moving through the entire process with them as a companion and mentor. Mentorship, therefore, functioned as a necessary part of the training program. At this first meeting, church leaders would ask questions about background and discern level of interest. Were they really sincere about becoming a Christian? Sponsors would speak on their behalf too, testifying that they were indeed ready. And here's how the apostolic tradition puts it. And those who brought them shall bear witness whether they have the ability to hear the word. They might be questioned about their state of life, whether he has a wife or whether he has a slave. So this is the, this is the first thing that the apostolic tradition want to know about. Now, I unfortunately ran out of my copy. Brian or Elizabeth, do you have your copy of, of this? Thanks. All right. Among other things, the examination involved investigating the candidate's work history. They shall inquire about the crafts and occupations of those who are brought for instruction. Professions too closely associated with traditional religion were at least questioned and sometimes disallowed. This included professions that in any day or cultural setting would be considered unacceptable to Christians, such as prostitution or gladiatorial combat, but it also included occupations that would on the surface seem pretty normal and legitimate, even from a Christian point of view. Still, these normal occupations supported traditional religion, however indirectly, which is why the church demanded that catechumens either quit them or, short of that, avoid excessive entanglement. I don't know what you guys do when uh, you have new members come to your church, but not many of you probably invite them to quit their jobs. <laughs> but that's, uh, that's at least indicative of the kind of mentality that's, that's going on here. So the sculptors... You could sculpt, but don't make idols. Actors could not play roles in dramas that taught traditional religion. Teachers could not instruct children in ancient myths. Civil magistrates and military officers could not preside over ceremonies that buttressed the state's power, especially religious power. And, you know, I don't know how one could keep doing their job if they are invited to... You can keep your job, but just don't do any of the activities that constitute your job, that sort of thing. That's one way of reading this, anyway. Uh, Church leaders did not view any profession as neutral because at least some buttressed the dominance of traditional religion. 
In these and other cases, if the catechumen refused to desist, they were, quote, to be rejected. The prohibition of these professions demonstrated, yet again, the significant difference between Christianity and Greco-Roman religion, which the catechumenate both exposed and reinforced. Sometimes the church demanded a clean break from the past. Second, so that's enrollment. Second, the document mandated that church leaders provide instruction to catechumens and urged sponsors to sit through the instruction with them. Sponsors were thus exposed to basic instruction in the faith more than once. This is interesting. You think not only about the catechumens being instructed, but also their sponsors are being instructed while they're also playing this instructing role. Think about the the multiple layers of instructing that is going on there. Moreover, sponsors served as a kind of relational bridge between the catechumens and the church, which put them in a position to clarify the instruction and apply it to the daily life of catechumens, as if participating in a kind of spiritual apprenticeship program. That's a metaphor I've heard uh, Father Lee use a lot to talk about catechesis, apprenticeship. Again, we want to, we the metaphor matters, okay? No outline of instruction is evident or obvious in the, in the uh, Hippolytus document, though it's possible to, to postulate what it might have included and probably did include. Early apologetic works demonstrate how important the Old Testament story was, with Jesus serving as its fulfillment. The Didache, uh, the other text called the Epistle to Diognetus, and the other apologetic text by Athenagoras, the Pleat. Uh, the Athenagoras' plea, indicate that catechumens received instruction in the Bible, in doctrine, and in ethics. Early documents also spelled out spiritual and liturgical practices, such as the daily recitation of the Lord's Prayer, baptism, and Eucharist. The apostolic tradition stated the intended outcome of catechetical instruction, even if it did not outline the actual curriculum. The goal was not simply greater knowledge, but also a change of behavior. Information was to lead to formation, instruction to discipleship. Moreover, the manual required that instructors do more than teach. It mandated that they pray for catechumens too. Finally, it made clear that catechumens were welcomed into the fellowship of the church, but could not become full and final members until after they were baptized. It reserved certain religious practices for baptized members only. After instruction and prayer, therefore, the catechumens were dismissed before members gave the kiss of peace, recited the Lord's Prayer, and received the Eucharist. Such exclusion from certain rites only buttressed their sacred quality. This is from the apostolic tradition. Each time the finisher finishes his instruction, let the catechumens pray for themselves apart from the men, both the baptized women and the women catechumens. But after the prayer is finished, the catechumens shall not give the kiss of peace, for their kiss is not yet pure. After the prayer of the catechumens, let the teacher lay hands upon them and pray and dismiss them. Whether the teacher be an ecclesiastic or a layman, Let him do the same. We can learn more about the curriculum from 4th century documents, for which we 
have the catechetical sermons of several prominent bishops, among them Ambrose of Milan, Cyril of Jerusalem, Theodore of Mopsuestia, John Chrysostom, Basil of Caesarea, Gregory of Nazianzus, Gregory of Nyssa, and Augustine of Hippo. Some bishops wrote guidelines for catechetical teaching as well. Thus, by this time, we have a formal body of instructional material widely available. Bishops told the biblical story. Our estimation would be somebody like Cyril of Jerusalem devoted some 80 hours to walking them through the biblical story. They would also explain the creed and the Lord's Prayer. They would outline Christian ethical behavior, mostly by using the Ten Commandments and the Sermon on the Mount. And then sometimes they explored the mysteries of the sacraments called the mystikoji during the eight days after Easter, known as the octave. I just love that part. The catechumens have never seen the Eucharist before, right? And then they've never even seen a baptism before. And then they're baptized, and then they're allowed to receive the Eucharist. And then they are explained what it is. It's like, it's so different than, than the way we think about it. But there you go. Third, uh, after the instruction comes the rites of initiation. So at the end of the formal training period, catechumens participated in the rites of initiation, which usually occurred during Holy Week and culminated on Easter Sunday morning when the bishop administered baptism, confirmation, and Eucharist. These rites of initiation were intended to reflect a spirit of mystery, and they enabled the catechumens to pass from outsider to insider, from candidate to member, from seeker to believer. The rites invited candidates into the story of salvation because the various rituals in which they participated embodied the story. These rituals included exorcisms, anointings, fastings, vigils, scrutiny, renunciation of the devil, affirmation of faith, a Trinitarian baptism, symbolic use of clothing, the white robes for the symbol of the new life, the congregational welcome, the kiss of peace they're now able to participate in, the recitation of the creed, the administration of the Eucharist, exhortation, and final instructions during Easter week, the mystagogy. We have all of this, this uh, laid out in the early 3rd century text, this Hippolytus text. So, as that text says, the final rites of initiation began with another examination with the sponsor bearing witness to the catechumen's readiness. So, there's the initial examination. They ask, you know, what kind of job, what kind of state of life you're in. Then they receive the instruction. And before the rites of initiation, they go through another examination process. And when they have chosen who are set apart to receive baptism, let their life be examined, whether they have lived piously while catechumens, whether they have honored the widows, whether they visited the sick, whether they have fulfilled every good work. If those who bring them, wit- those who bring them witness to them that they have done this, then let them hear the gospel. In this case, the gospel most likely referred to the creed, which candidates would memorize and then recite during the baptismal service. During Holy Week, candidates were busy with last-minute spiritual preparation. The atmosphere became heavy with anticipation, dense with solemnity. Daily exorcisms implied that the devil himself would be especially active in disrupting and undermining the process at the very end. 
a quote, another quote from the apostolic tradition. Moreover, from the day they are chosen, let a hand be laid on them and let them be exercised daily. But if there is one who is not purified, let him be put on one side because he did not hear the word of instruction with faith. For it is impossible that the alien spirit should remain with him. On the day before their baptism, catechumens fasted, kept vigil, and prayed, all in preparation for the great event. Bishops in turn prayed over them, breathed on them, and sealed their forehead, ears, mouth, and nose with the sign of the cross, as if to erect a spiritual wall of protection around them. Finally, bishops read scripture and instructed them. This rich choreography culminated in the administration of baptism, confirmation, and Eucharist. The bishop prayed over the baptismal waters. Then the candidate submitted to one last exorcism, renounced the devil, confessed faith using a threefold formula that sounds a lot like our apostolic creed, and were plunged into the baptismal waters three times. After baptism... Candidates were anointed with the oil of thanksgiving and the oil of confirmation and ushered into the church or hall to meet church members who welcomed them with the kiss of peace. There they received their first Eucharist, which consisted not only of bread and wine, but also of milk and honey. Think of origin again, right? Milk and honey, symbols of the, of the promised land and hope of the coming kingdom. Hippolytus concluded by exhorting new members to live out their faith through works of obedience. He writes, And when these things have been accomplished, let each one be zealous to perform good works and to please God, living righteously, devoting himself to the church, performing the things which he has learnt, and advancing in the service of God. Thus, by the early 3rd century, the catechumen involved three discrete stages. It began with informal contact with non-believers, which led to formal enrollment, initial examination, and assignment of a sponsor or mentor. It then provided instruction in the biblical story, the creed, and the Christian way of life, assuming that such knowledge would lead to genuine change of life. Finally, it culminated in Holy Week when church leaders scrutinized candidates one more time and led them through a highly choreographed process of initiation that involved fasting, prayer, vigils, exorcisms, anointings, baptism, confirmation, and Eucharist. Thus, belief, belonging, and behavior were woven together into a seamless whole, no one element predominating over the others. By the time we reach the 4th century, the evidence is plentiful and cogent. We have Egeria's detailed description of the catechumenate in Jerusalem, as well as her stirring account of the Great Week, Holy Week. We also have Cyril of Jerusalem's catechetical sermons, which corroborate Egeria's account. And we also have the catechetical sermons of Theodore, Chrysostom, Ambrose, Nyssa, Nazianzus, Basil, and Augustine. Great reading. All, all of this is just excellent reading. Okay, well, what happened after that? The catechumenate and Christendom. Christendom emerged during the Middle Ages as a result of the long and complex process of the Christianization of Europe. 
Christendom refers to the symbiotic relationship between church and state, Christianity and culture. It began to emerge in the 4th century when Christianity became the official religion of the empire and the church one of the dominant institutions of the empire. Over time, Christianity prevailed to such a degree that the vast majority of people living in the empire simply assumed that they were Christian, as if by default. Thus, it was less likely that people became Christian by decision as well as by commitment and training. They simply were Christian just by association with living in a Christian culture. Christendom changed the catechumenate. Evidence of this change surfaced as early as the 4th century. One sign of change concerned the timing. The catechumenate was simultaneously lengthened and shortened. Christian families sometimes enrolled their children as catechumens when still young, though many of those children did not become functional catechumens or competentes until they reached adulthood. Augustine is an example of this. Augustine's mother, Monica, for example, enrolled him as a catechumen when he was a little boy, but he doesn't submit to catechetical training, which is what he does under Ambrose, until he was about 30 years old. So that's what he means by lengthening and shortening. One could become a catechumen for 30 years in this case, but doesn't receive that sort of intense formal training until much later and usually for a condensed amount of time. Another sign of change involved the rites of initiation, which became increasingly grandiose and elaborate. We know the most about what happened because we have access to Egeria's journal. This is a fa- another fascinating uh, 4th century document. Most likely a Spanish nun, Egeria went on pilgrimage to the Holy Land in the 380s. And she recorded her experiences and observations for the nuns who were not able to travel with her. In her journal, she devoted many pages to a description of the Great Week, or Holy Week, as it unfolded in Jerusalem. Constantine's mother, Helena, had persuaded her son to turn Jerusalem into a pilgrimage site, which set in motion the massive construction of churches and shrines. Holy Week became a major event and a tourist attraction. Huge crowds of pilgrims flocked to the holy city. But the event, as well as its popularity, changed the catechumenate, in effect separating the final initiation process from the training program that prepared people for it. It became, in other words, a spectacle, like a showy commencement ceremony following a mediocre education. Bishops were not pleased about the decline of the catechumenate. Many of the great 4th century bishops gave voice to their frustration and disapproval in their sermons. Catechumens resisted enrolling in the final training program to become church members. Why, bishops asked, were catechumens attending worship at all? Was there some ulterior and ungodly motive? Were catechumens guilty of worldliness and presumption? The catechumenate eventually faded until it was almost forgotten as an important discipline of the early Christian movement. 
During the medieval period, most everyone was baptized as an infant or baptized as an adult in a mass ceremony of tribal conversion. Renewal movements emerged to Christianize Christians and to disciple the baptized. The rite, later the sacrament of confirmation, became the preferred method of confirming and thus completing the baptism of infants, usually years later. In some cases, candidates for confirmation received instruction before they were confirmed, but not always. Monasteries preserved some features of the catechumen in the novitiate, a three-year process that prepared novices to take final vows and become permanent members of a monastic community. This is, right there, is some of the impulse for the reason we're gathering together and talking about this. The question on our minds today is whether, considering the increasingly post-Christendom environment in which we live, we need to create a new kind of catechumenate, especially for those churches that serve in cities that have few practicing Christians. Can you think of some of those cities? Can we assume as much about friends and relatives, visitors and inquirers, as we once did? Has their familiarity with Christianity suffered from neglect and only needs to be reawakened? Or must we start further back? Thank you. Let's give a clap for Jerry. Good job, Jerry. Thank you for your time. All right, at this point, I'll invite our, our three respondents to come on up. And we can have a seat here. And... John will do the great work of setting them up with microphones. Yep. We'll have uh, two microphones up here at the table, so, so grab a seat here. And, and then we'll have one more, a microphone that we'll, that we'll pass around as well. But what I've asked them to do is to kick off the conversation with us. This is a conversation we're all having together, but I've asked them especially to prepare just a couple of thoughts and comments. These can be either, um, you know, taking this material and how does it, how does it flesh out in, in the local context, or it can be pushing back on something. Uh, or it can be taking us in a, in, a, in a further direction or something like that. So I've, I've left it much up to them to decide how they're going to respond, but they are going to do the work of, of getting us started and, and kicking us off. And you guys can either go one at a time or, or bounce around, but um, let the conversation begin. Um, I did want to just mentioned the, the, the last the last paragraph raises just all the questions I think that need to be asked and, mm-hmm. and so I'd just rather start there than at mm-hmm. the beginning um, which which is this really big question even driving into San Francisco I'm thinking gosh it's so different from the middle of Texas <laughs> and, and, and what would I do if I was to plant a church in San Francisco and I, we'll talk about this later I'm sure over beer or something um, but yeah it's it's got to be different it has mm-hmm. to be different um, and then I was thinking but hey, you know it really has to be different in a place like Waco, Texas, too. It really has to be different in the Bible Belt because I can't tell you the number of people that have come to me and have said, I grew up in church, I've been in church my whole life, 
and I've never been taught the basics, mm -hmm. not even once. Um, and, and no one's ever took the time to go over basic Christian doctrines and believing with me. And, it, and we know that's the case because the, the research shows it. And mm -hmm. so, I mean, who are we kidding? Baylor professors say this yeah. all the time about the undergrads that have, that have grown up in church and, and raised this. They, they say this all the time, but yeah. Um, first of all, um, Alex, you said pushback, so I want, actually want to push back really quickly on something yeah. you said. Yes. Um, not Gerald Sitzer, but oh. Alex Fogelman. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, Alex encouraged us to challenge the speakers, and I said, well, I'm not afraid to challenge Greg Peters. Yeah. But he left out the fact that he is the most beloved professor of whom I've learned so much, so That's I just wanted true. to clear that up. Anyone you, that knows you're, Father you're, Greg will immediately be wowed by his charm and grace. And so we, we don't have to talk about how nice he is and how smart he is. You'll, you'll discover yeah. that You'll discover enough. that on your own. Right, right, right. Um, but one thing I was really struck by, um, like you mentioned, um, the fact that you know most people haven't had catechetical training in churches. And one thing I kept thinking was that analogy of the Jordan River and mm. the Red Sea. And how many of us have crossed the Red Sea thinking that it was the Jordan, mm. but actually we've just entered the desert mm. and we didn't have the, that, you know, we, we are expecting that we're in the promised land. And I mean, it gets a little fuzzy because, you know, if you're baptized and you're communing and in a sense you are in the promised land, but maybe you haven't, what have you lost by not having that desert experience yeah. and not having your soul formed? Are we not even able to experience the promised land in a way because we're not prepared for it. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I was just thinking about that. Like, what, What's the danger of not having a catechumenate, looking at it from a negative point of view? Um, what have we lost? Mm -hmm. And even like for us here today, I don't think any of us, well, I won't say that for, you know, I think most of us didn't have a catechumenate experience mm -hmm. before we were allowed to be baptized and had this extremely mystical experience and then mystagogy following, you know, and what what are we missing out on? Hmm. Uh, I, I love this lecture. I Thank you. Yeah, yeah it's welcome. fantastic, Alex. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I find it really interesting and really helpful um, because I think one of the challenges we have, maybe even more so actually, Lee, in your context, is that there's an over-familiarity hmm. with a Christian identity, or an assumed Christian identity, which is so underformed or malformed in, many, in some cases that it per, it's like inoculation. It prevents you from having the real thing. And I think yeah. that kind of is what you're saying about the, the desert and or the, the Red Sea and the, and the Jordan. And so I, I was just thinking about, practically speaking, I wonder if there, like how, do, how would we go about helping people re-realize, and this is including ourselves, not speaking to others, but mm -hmm. re-realize that we actually uh, do not really understand Christian, uh, the Christian identity that we're supposed to live into. How, mm -hmm. how do we re recover uh, uh, a foreignness to it because yeah. one of the uh, advantages they had in the first uh, era of the church first four centuries is that it really was new so nobody could say like oh I've been there done that I right. already know about that my grandparents whatever it was like you you were discovering something new um, and I think in, in our era it, it, it's either over familiar or it's we've been there and done that yeah. we've progressed beyond this now mm -hmm. and so whatever a catechumen in our era looks like it has to address both of those, both the overfamiliarity and the been there and done that dynamics, and I think that's why it has to be different in some cases than what we see in the first four centuries. Although yeah. it shouldn't be any less than that. That's what I would yeah, say. Yeah, that's that's a great great point. I mean, people have often talked about this that the early Christians lived before Christendom 
So there's no memory of a Christian culture to deal with. Whereas we're living even ostensibly similar circumstances, but we're, we're, we come with a lot of baggage. We're loaded with a lot of memory about this Christian identity. In most of the cases, it's probably a false memory, but it's still important. Yeah. I have one more thing, too, that's sort of related, but he gives a, a, a good metaphor. You talked about the bridge. Yeah. You talked about the uh, language immersion program. Mm-hmm. I like them both. They're good metaphors. I actually think the language immersion program is not quite enough. Uh, because you could go to you could you could go through a, a extensive language training, for instance, here in the U.S., mm-hmm. and then move to a place like Thailand or something like that, and realize that you might know vocabulary, mm. but you are missing an entire dynamic of what it looks like to think and, and move and live and breathe in that culture. So mm. I actually prefer the language of culture, which we're sort of we overuse that language around here at Eucharist Church, but uh, and enculturation. That's yeah. what we're talking about, rather than just learning a language. So I think yeah. there's a, a, a it's, it's richer. It involves more uh, pieces of your identity than just like a, a skill set. So yeah, I'm sure if Jerry was here, he would agree and want to add his own comment on that. But, uh, <laughs> actually, I wouldn't agree that he would agree with me, but I, I think this is robust. <laughs> Sounds incredibly arrogant there. Yeah, yeah and, th- and that's why the language of apprenticeship is so strong. Yeah, is because yeah. in apprenticeship you're you're taking on patterns of living and working and thinking and uh, and and uh, relating to the world that are new, hmm. that you didn't have before. Um, and I love what Aiden, Aiden Kavanaugh says, that the, the catechumen is something like conversion therapy. Hmm. And, and you know, when you, when you go into therapy, it's really strange because you're like, what am I going to talk about? <laughs> like, what are we going to do? Um, and then over time you build familiarity and you build like, oh, you build a relationship and then it's like, oh, well, now I know exactly what we're going to talk about. I'm going to talk about the fight I had with my wife last week, or we're going to talk about this, we're going to talk about that, or we're going to talk about all my failures and all my hopes and all my dreams. And like, That's where we get to the root of it, right? That's where we get to the very center of where there's this incredible um, thing that happens. And Kavanaugh says that it, it's, it's reorienting someone's center of gravity around a new center of gravity, which is the incarnate God in Jesus Christ. Right, and and I don't know that American Christians in particular, or Western Christians at all, really um, have have a new center of gravity. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we have other centers of gravity, and we're sort of stretched between those centers of gravity. But but the catechumenate serves to to refocus that. The other thing that I would say, just to push back on what you said about this new language, is that a new language has to be learned. Mm-hmm. Um, you know. I think one of the problems with with kind of seeker-oriented churches is that they use language that people already know to teach them something they don't, mm-hmm. and that's impossible, right? Yeah. It's just patently impossible. So one of the things you, you have to do in catechesis is you have to, and Kavanaugh, I keep going back to Kavanaugh for some reason today, wonderful stuff, but he, he says basically that you're taking the the largely subjective experience of conversion and you're giving it a public content. Mm. So you're, you're giving it new language. You're, you're allowing it to thrive in a way that is not just like, well, I feel or I think or my experience mm. is, but, but it, 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 um, in a sense it democratizes the language mm. of uh, subjective experience so that it can be shared. Mm-hmm. Right when all we have is our own language to describe what happened to us as individuals, and that's really the fault of of a lot of the evangelical movement here, is that it tends to be okay with just sort of leaving the language where it is. And 
And that's why it's really important to teach expressly doctrinal theological mm-hmm. language. Um, and, uh, and I think we just have not done a great job of that. Yeah. Um, so. I agree with you. And um, I also, um, it's interesting when you mentioned, Ryan, the language immersion analogy and how maybe you didn't think that was the most helpful. But not, 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 not far enough, not far enough. <laughs> but um, I'm just really struck by how we, again, kind of going with the idea of, okay, we think that we've entered into the promised land, but what if we've mm. just entered into the desert? And we use words like freedom, and we use words like love, and we use words like mm. um, agency and personhood. And like, like as a, a, and we, we use all these words, and um, because we're living in a post-Christian context, or you know, some would still think of it as a Christian context, just because we have all this language yeah. that, that we use in just this very everyday sense, um, but the definitions have become stripped of their theology, and the definitions have become commandeered by an American ethos, or become right. commandeered by a capitalist ethos, or become commandeered by a secular ethos, and they become in reference to us. So, what's freedom in reference to me? What's love in reference to me? What's you know? And it's and it's really lost its true meaning. Um, and so, it's really hard to tell people, yeah, you have freedom in Jesus. Yeah. And they say, oh, I know what that means. Yeah. But they haven't been trained to know, oh, we have like completely definition, yeah. different <laughs> definitions for you, you know? And we can't just tell you that. Yeah. Because if it really is this reorientation of ourselves from around me to around Christ, like that really takes a lot of suffering, mm. it seems. You know, and like it, t- yeah. it takes a journey. So it's suffering. Anybody that learns the grammar of a new language, like has to go back to fundamental ways of learning language, you know, talk to any high school English student, and they're like, this is hard. It's a Linton practice. <laughs> yeah, good. Um, I also thought in this presentation, it was very interesting, he references the amount of mystery yeah. that is built into what's going on. I don't think he just means like, um, like uh, something that will be discovered, but there's, there's, yeah. there's more to that. There's, there's that we're entering into something. We're, mm-hmm. we're, uh, and I feel like that is also something that is largely lost in our culture. And and we are often demystifying. Um, this is some of the seeker movement that was, did that was well-meaning in its intentions, but I think yeah. very uh, had destructive um, consequences, which is it demystified. Yeah. Uh, and I think we, om- we want to actually have more mystery. Um, we want to be encompassed and enter into mystery. Mystery is not a problem to be solved. It's something to be entered into. Yeah. And I think that, that, is, um, that that's preserved here. And it's preserved here by something that's so countercultural, which is actually exclusion. The, church yeah. was, the early church was quite exclusive. Yeah. Uh, like is, is more so than maybe a fraternity today that has its own secret. Yeah. You know? <laughs> like it, it, yeah. it has a lot of that going on. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how to recover that in our context in an appropriate way without it just sounding like, arrogant and elitist. Mm. And that's one of the questions I have for the, the church today is how do you recover mystery without becoming an elitist, which is the very opposite of the gospel in yeah. so many ways. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'll, I'll just say something on Alex's behalf because Alex mentioned this at a vestry meeting of all things last week, that one way is just to keep things separate, right? Don't let your worship become catechesis. Don't let your catechesis become worship. Don't let your fellowship time or your whatever it might be Keep some clear categories, right? That's one way to really be clear is just have utterly clear categories. Another thing that I, I think I keep going back to is, is well, I, I was reading this 
wonderful section in the Uber on the way over uh, about Holy Week becoming a skeptic, becoming a spectacle, a skeptical mm. spectacle. Um, that's fun. <laughs> uh, and and l- listen, if you haven't read Ajaria's accounts of what Holy Week was like in about 382 in Jerusalem, go read. It's wonderful. <laughs> uh, but and as much as I'd like to go back to that, um, it's impossible. Mm-hmm. Um, however, there's a lot to be gained from saying, what if um, Holy Week itself became the refocusing of a catechumenate for today, just in the sense of saying things like, well, you know, we just don't baptize adults outside of Easter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. no. Um, and I, I've done that for years now, and one of the things I find is that people are like, okay, well, so you want me to, like, start in the catechesis in August and end up in April? That's fine. Yeah, that's great. But for whatever reason, if you said, well, we could do a baptism in October, then they'll, they'll be like, okay, so, like, a couple weeks then? Yeah. And it's just yeah. the weird, it's like a really mm-hmm. interesting change. Um, and that's why I've always asked the bishop to visit in Eastertide mm-hmm. for confirmation. Same reason. It's to say, let Holy Week be the culmination of that whole thing. Let Easter be the culmination of all of that so that the mysteries heighten, so that there's an air of celebration to this yeah. and not just kind of like, well, it's the second Sunday in Pentecost. And <laughs> I guess we ought to have a baptism because it's been a while. It's like, what are you doing? You know, the, the, the wonder of the calendar being instructive is so important. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's just a thought. That's great. Time I don't think it's, I don't think it's become in. a spectacle at all. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Great. Right here. Um, hi, guys. Um, I had a question. Uh, I wanted to get your advice. So I'm glad that St. Justin was brought up in the lecture because of his theology of the seeds of the Logos. Yeah. And he talks about how culture, in a sense, can be the aid of the Holy Spirit to prepare someone for Christianity. Mm. Um, so he was referencing you know, Greek philosophy. What are cultural myths or cultural narratives that already exist in the U.S. that can help um, prepare people for the catechumenate or for Christianity that we can draw on to help them in that translation from a secular worldview into a Christian one? I don't have an answer. I'm curious what these two think, but I just wanted to clarify your question. So you're saying that, um, so the Greek notion of logos. Well, well having... Justin Martyr has a specific term he calls the seeds uh, of the logos, the, the logos spermaticos. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a way of saying that uh, there's the eternal father, Christ is the logos, but there's all these spermatic logoi, <laughs> implanted seeds, spermatic, okay, stay clean. Uh, seeds implanted into human beings, and that's part of our connection to, to the logos. So it's not the same thing. Logos, logoi is how later, later theologians would put it, but there are these... Uh, the, the seeds of the Logos are implanted in the world. And so what Justin will use this to say is that, um, you know, philosophers like Plato and Aristotle have these seeds too, and so they're able to get some things right. So I think part of your question is where are these, these seeds of the Logos in our culture today, and where can we identify those, articulate those for the people that we're, that we're engaging with? I'll just I'll just be a really stern skeptic and say I don't think there are any. I, I really don't. I, 
Fatherly is if, more like Tertullian. If you know if this, our, Tertullian well, versus Justin Martyr. Just, just bear just, with me. Okay. Like, <laughs> modern, met, modern metaphysics leave no room for Christian believing at the end of the day. The, the nihilism of our culture has exploded any sense of mystery, the divine, the invisible, whatever it might be. Now, having said that, when you compare that to what you get in Plato, which is like, you know, it'd be a lot easier to be virtuous if like a perfect philosopher king just sort of showed up on the scene and showed us how to do it. Like this is literally in the Republic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah. like, yeah, there's a, there's a, there's a local, I mean, now I'm not entirely skeptical. I, I think there are some things where, um, you know, modern people still seek after truth and they seek mm. after, um, the beautiful, and and so part of me just says like, there are some ways in, right? And Benedict the Sixteenth speaks has spoken all the time about how the art the church creates and the saints she creates are the way in, right? And and um, and I think there are all manner of art forms that enliven enliven us to divine truth, um, but but in terms of seeking it in the kind of modern milieu, I I, I just have to say it's so fundamentally Opposite, not opposite. Opposite, mm-hmm. against. Um, I don't see it. Mm. I like that Lee is blunt because I sound moderate. And, 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 <laughs> um, I, I share a lot of the critique that, that, that Lee has uh, as well. But I, I do think that um, I, I do think that there are these seeds mm-hmm. in, embedded. One, one thing that's difficult to tell though is whether some of the seeds that you see, for instance, in in um, in cinema, you see stories of reconciliation. And they're beautiful stories. Uh, and what I can't tell necessarily, though, is whether that's the remnants of a Christendom or whether mm. that's actually a seed. Mm. I, I do also think just looking across culture and time, family has been a picture, a natural picture that has drawn people into something. Mm. So I think that God did create, obviously, the good, the true, the beautiful, the sort of like classic. Um, so I think there are things there. I'm hesitant to sort of like hitch my wagon to any one of these particular <laughs> Particular things in our culture right now because of the concerns that Lee has as well. The metaphysical mm-hmm. underpinnings are often like there's not room for beyond that. I guess I'm a little bit less skeptical. Um, <laughs> Brandon, is that right? Okay, wonderful. Great question. Thank you for your question. Um, I think that it was <clears throat> very interesting to me when I was doing my master's in counseling psychology um, to see how they called us the new secular priesthood. And it kind of, for me, mm. gave me a Petri dish of our culture and where I could look and see, well, what, what bacteria is really growing in our culture right now? You know, like what's really strong, what's dying out? And um, per what we were talking about earlier about language, just seeing how much people wanted freedom, how much people wanted, um, you know, some sort of love, some sort, you know, like, like, like there are these like... Um, internal longings and desires that I think have been with us since the beginning of time, but it has become so twisted and so distorted um, through our secular lens, through um, our, you know, through, through so many things that I don't even think people knew how to even access the truth, like, because they were being told, well, just go more into yourself, you know, and, and you'll find all those things instead of, you know, coming out of yourself and 
into Christ, coming out of yourself and your individualistic identity into your corporate identity in his body in a sacramental way. Like all those things were just totally the opposite. But at the same time, I saw in everybody who was being trained in this program just how much they wanted to help people, how much they wanted people to be set free, how much they wanted people to receive healing. But it just was through an incredibly distorted way. So I think I do see these seeds in the form of longing. Um, and it's not like there's no hope. But I do think, I like wonder, like, well, yeah, to go from this incredibly... Um, when, you're, when your trajectory is this way yeah. and to switch it so that you're following Christ this way, I'm like, how many years does, does is that a yeah. multi-year process, like a catechumenate, you know, like where you have to relearn everything in a way, yeah. Mm. Time for one more? Yeah. Back in the back. You got to wait for the mic because it has to be on the recording. <laughs> Sorry, I'm inconveniently located. <laughs> Um, I guess my question is slightly more practical in that um, the lecture talks so beautifully about not only a transformation and understanding through the process of catechesis, but the life transformation that we're hoping will take place. And one of the conversations that we've had in our catechumenate um, several times is the tension between um, falling into a very top-down, heady-oriented uh, catechesis process that overemphasizes knowledge. Can you give the right answer to these sets mm. of questions? Are you are you orthodox in your responses? Um, whereas measuring people's actual internal spiritual growth is a much harder thing to navigate. And so I guess I was wondering if you three had had um, incorporated any practices um, into your catechesis that was showing really beautiful fruit and just the lives of people as they're entering into really what you already described. This is a new life. This is a new way of being, a new center of gravity. How do we incorporate that into our catechesis so that it's not merely top-down, heady knowledge pouring into people, but also really like a new life? Great question. Uh, I'll just I, that's a huge big question. I actually think that um, Jerry Sitzer's next lecture is going to get into some of that. I've seen mm. the, the preview of it, so um, <laughs> so I, maybe it'll be helpful. But I, I do think that one one aspect of this is you can either be theological or you can be moralistic. Those are kind of poles that are not necessarily opposite each other, but they can be two ditches to get stuck in. I think one thing that we've been trying to practically figure out on our end for our catechumen is how to make it a social experience. Uh, and because so much of our identity and so much of the transformation of, of culture is, is embodied in community together. And so uh, I don't know enough about the early church to know if they thought exactly in cohort terms, but it mm-hmm. seems like a lot of that stuff is cohort-type experiences. Where you're together mm-hmm. with people, and there's yeah. clearly mentorship and relationship. And so... Um, Father Lee referenced, uh, Pope Benedict XVI's reference to the making of saints. And so the, the role of saints, the role of uh, Im- imitating like godly life is not just an abstract thing. It's, it should be incarnated in the congregation. So if, if a catechumen is to work well, it has to be done in the context of a congregation that's actually yeah. embodying the maturity that people that we're leading people into. So I, I'm, I don't think I really got to the bottom of a real practical answer, but I do think it needs to be social fundamentally. The, the catechumen is not just information, it's social 
Uh, and it's not just individual exercises to go off by yourself and work on. So that would be my. I think one thing that our catechumenate <clears throat> is doing right now is um, just extremely basic things that for some reason are so hard for us today, like pray in the daily office, um, practicing confession. Um, like these are, these seem so fundamental, like they feel like they'd be like your first class in the catechumenate or something like that. Um, but for us, it's extremely hard and it's extremely practical just to carve out a prioritization of time or to have transparency and vulnerability in the context of confession, you know, or, or something like that. Um, so it doesn't really measure, but for me personally, it does give me a litmus test of my soul when I say, Ooh, I have, you know, would I rather do midday prayer right now or get this thing done I really have to do while our two-year-old is napping? You know, like it, it for me gives me this litmus test and um, I, I think it reflects that for the other people in our catechumenate when they see, well, how am I spending my time? Yeah, so there are several things to say. I mean, but one is to speak to the need for simultaneous spiritual direction throughout this process of catechesis. Um, so that's really important to me is to say, constantly in catechesis like you know if you don't have a spiritual director we can get you that um huge absolutely huge um another thing is is like just take a break and say how's this going to matter tomorrow to you like any of the things we're teaching how's it going to matter tomorrow and so um i I tell the story often but um and i i started five years ago now teaching from a, a question and answer catechism um which was the draft catechism for the acna and and uh, one of the values of it is it holds your feet to the fire to say, this is what you've got to get through, you know. Mm. Um, and and as one of the authors, I'm still like, do I really want to? And they're like, yes, you have to. I'm like, okay, I'll do it. And so, you know, we were teaching on the daily office, and I yeah. said to the group there, like, you know, if you're going to be Anglican or you're going to, like, pursue a spiritual life, you've got to do something like the daily office. And so you might as well just get on with it. And at the end of the whole thing, <laughs> at the end of the whole thing, this group of you know, graduate students and undergraduate students at Baylor, they were sitting there and they were talking. And one of the questions we'd asked was, how's this going to matter tomorrow? And they said, we should pray morning prayer together tomorrow. <laughs> okay. And someone said, just tomorrow? <laughs> yeah, that sounds weak, doesn't it? Well, let's, let's, let's just take the rest of Easter, which had like four weeks left. Okay, great. So they said, we'll, just, we'll have morning prayer every day of the week, Monday through Friday, for the rest of Easter. They've been doing this for almost five years now. So do you see what's going on is that is that it's everything that's taught is meant to be put in practice immediately. And this is one of the things that, that for instance, the movement world in the Middle East, for instance, teaches us, or like T4T, if you know the languages. They're really getting down to the essentials of saying, this is not just like an exercise in filling your head with knowledge. That's a really modernistic thing. That's not the catechumenate. If you read the catech- if you read about the catechumenate in a lecture like this and say, oh, so you're really talking about information transla- transmission. Mm-hmm. It's like, no. Like, this is meant to be put in practice immediately. So one of the ways you can track that is to do what Augustine does, which is to say, have multiple points of inquiry, not only where you're asking about the catechumen, right, and what they're up to and how they're doing and you know, do you still hate your parents after all this instruction, right? It's that kind of thing, you know. Um, you know, are you are you still being stingy with the poor? You know, it's, it's questions like that. But it also provides an opportunity to get to know them, right, and say, like, how's this working? Because one of the overarching principles of catechesis is that, and I, I hate to even say this, but there is no teacher. God is the teacher, right? The Holy Spirit is the teacher, and, and we believe that 
or we should believe, and if you don't, then we'll have words afterwards, but it's that, that, that God is the teacher, and so he is calling people into relationship with himself, and he's pouring gifts upon them and graces upon them that they don't have by nature. Hmm. And, and because it's God's work, he does it. Um, all we have to be is faithful in the task, right? Um, and and um, I, I keep going back to what um, um, William Harmless, the great you know scholar in Augustine, uh, once said about the catechumenate, which is that this isn't something the church either does or doesn't do. This is something the church does because of who she is. And we either do it well or we do it poorly. <laughs> And so part of doing it well is to say, how do we cooperate with the Holy Spirit in this work of teaching, right? That's really a big question. And that means digging into people's lives and saying, like, how's how's it going? Like, ask the questions. When you see people out there that look lost and dumbfounded, you know, say, you and I need to have lunch this week, right? (laughs) Or we need to meet up. And, and, uh, you know, that takes time and it takes energy and it takes effort, but so worthwhile, so worthwhile. Um, That's good. So... Let's um, let's take a break there. We'll uh, get coffee and tea and snacks back there. We'll reconvene in about 3:30. Thanks. Yeah.